coming from the thick of it. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. Today, we're super excited to be recording at One Team Gov Global in London, where over 700 public sector reformers from around the world have come together to share, teach and inspire practical action on an international scale. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala. And today we're talking with Sarah Harkham, Director at FutureGov in Australia. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks. It's really lovely to be here. You've probably come the furthest to attend One Team Gov. How does it feel to be back in London? It's really lovely, actually. I mean, obviously, I've chosen it well with the weather. It's a beautiful sunny time here in London. It's been really nice to be back. It feels really familiar, but I'm also seeing quite a few changes here and there. And even just today, coming into the room filled with lots of people from all over the world, I've run into people that I've known for years. So it's really nice to kind of be back and connecting with people. And that's not even to mention friends that I've caught up with over the last couple of days. So it's really nice. And I hear you're also here for a party. Yes. So Future Gov are having their summer party at the end of the week. So that's where we all get together from across the world. The different spots of Future Gov come back here with the UK-based team and celebrate what's happened in the year that's gone past and think through what we want to do for the year ahead. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So how did you get started in the public sector? That is an interesting question. So I went straight into the public sector from university, actually. I have a law degree and a history degree, but I pretty quickly realised law wasn't for me, but I still wanted to make a difference in what I was doing in my job. So I started working for the parliament in New South Wales, which is in Australia, we've got three levels of government. New South Wales is the biggest state in Australia. So the government there and worked with politicians Bizarrely, I've worked with politicians throughout my career and started out doing that. So I went out on site visits with them, going out to investigate issues on behalf of citizens of New South Wales. So from things like exploring new highways that needed to be built and the impact that would be having on people's homes and businesses, both in positive and negative ways, to investigating deaths in custody in jail. I was in a support role, but obviously working with people who were representing citizens. And there was something about that being able to bring in people's voices into decision making. And that's a theme that's kind of continued through my career, which is why I guess I'm not surprised that I've ended up doing human-centered design or service design roles the further I've gone in my career, because it started with trying to make sure that citizens' voices were at the heart of decision making and understanding what was going wrong and how we could improve it. I think I was just lucky. It was a bit of, oh, I need a job. Oh, parliament sounds fun. Let's go work there. And then realised that I really loved the fact that it was bringing together ordinary citizens' views with decision-making. I think that you might be one of the few people we've had on the show so far that's worked directly into ministers. What's that like? And do you have any the thick of it type stories you could share? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So in terms of thick of it type stories, I went through three ministers in the space of a month, Cabinet Office and the Office for Civil Society. So a long-standing minister was resigned. That was definitely quite thick of it. People running around going, oh, my God, what do we do about this? Working with politicians, done that in a number of different jobs, from working to ministers here in the UK, Minister for Civil Society, but also 
to members of the London Assembly. Their job is to keep an eye on the Mayor of London, Boris and Ken, two quite controversial and challenging mayors to keep an eye on. But working with politicians, it's no different from working with anyone else. They're people. And I think that's the best way to approach it is they are people with their own motivations, their own interests. And it's like working with any other group of people. You need to understand what motivates them. What is the thing that they're trying to make an impact in? And so I guess a part of that is listening to them. What are the issues that are important to them? What are the things that come on their desk from citizens? And if you start with that and treat them with that kind of respect and go, well, my job is to understand what you want to achieve on behalf of your citizens, they're actually pretty easy to work with. I think if you relate to them as one human to another, (laughs) just a bunch of people with their own quirks and foibles. Yeah, that's good to hear. Politicians are humans too. We need to get that on a t-shirt maybe. Seems like they're going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. You talk about being citizen-centric for the majority of your early career. How did you transition into digital and technology work? If you look at my career, I've done lots and lots of different things. I spent about five and a half years at City Hall, which when I think about that, I go, wow, how did I make five and a half years in one job? Because since then, the longest job I've had is about a year and a half. And I had an opportunity. And again, networking is really important. So putting yourself out there, thinking about what are the things that you like to do and the things that get you out of bed and going out there and thinking through how can you apply that to different contexts? Because I guess you're learning how to problem solve from a number of different angles. And so between some roles, I did a number of maternity covers because that's the perfect opportunity. You get to go, immerse yourself in a new role, and there's a fixed period of time at which it ends. People come back in. And so you get to learn about problem solving from different perspectives. I've worked in NGOs. I've worked in philanthropy. I've worked in central government. I've worked in consultancy as well. The way I got into digital and technology, I'd come to the end of a period of work for Mary Curie, a big national charity and their strategy team, helping them think through how did they need to redesign themselves as an organisation. And a key part of that was going through big digital transformation. So I was watching that from the sides going, oh, this is really interesting. We're talking here about how do we redesign services, putting citizens at the heart of it, which obviously is music to my ears. From that point, networking became really important going out there, understanding what was available, what kind of roles were coming up in this space. What I've went into was research with users. And again, that's about asking questions, listening, same skill set that you need when you work with politicians, understanding people's lives and their motivation and going deeper into understanding what they need and want to get out of their lives, which is at the heart of good digital services. I feel that with digital, if you design something that people don't want to use, you can see that very quickly fails fast. But one of the things that appeals to me from working with FutureGov is they're bringing that into the heart of design government services. So how do we bring that human-centered design failing fast and learning quickly to designing services in which we don't have customers in a, in a business sense? People don't often have choice. It becomes more important to then design things for people who don't have those choices often in the services they use or don't. I was really lucky to work with an organization here in the UK called Transform UK who are also in Australia now as well, and worked on user research for a program that supported young teenage mothers called the Family Nurse Partnership, funded by the UK government here, run out of a hospital trust. But they realised that the cohort that they were working with, young people, they were often quite vulnerable, poor young women 
they all had a smartphone. They knew where to get Wi-Fi from. It was the connector, it was the thing that they used. They wouldn't have a landline. They'd have limited resources, but their smartphone was the way to connect with them. So they realised they had to adapt the way that they were working, the more traditional nursing service. But if they wanted to connect with their users and help them to achieve the outcomes in their lives that they wanted to achieve, then they needed to adapt themselves. That was the project. Lucky enough to work on that. And then got offered a role here in Cabinet Office in the UK. Took that because I was interested to see what it was like from the heart of government. Working in digital transformation, again, technology, it's an enabler. It isn't the thing. Don't ask me to design you an app. It's about the people that use it that I'm interested in. Favourite sector to work in? Interestingly, I think it's government got a law degree there is something attractive to me about working within a set of rules but being creative at how you kind of challenge and push that which is essentially what lawyers have to do make your argument and convince your case what I like is that I get to bridge a number of different worlds so government you have to try and bring the human element in and you're working within a big machine where often that gets lost you need to know how the machine works to shift it and change it I quite like that challenge because you're working within a system to make change and, and I find that a quite creative process. I like working with politicians because it's quite fun to try and influence them <laughs> on the basis of evidence. The work that we do in service design, one of my bugbears is qualitative insights and people's stories are evidence and we've got to privilege that. I like the challenge of working with people who come from more analytical backgrounds and perspectives to go, look, Quant data is important, but it won't tell you why people are reacting in a certain way or why they use services differently. So for me, I like that I can work across those two different worlds, but get them to shift their thinking. It doesn't always happen, of course, but sometimes when you get it right, being able to help people realise that actually human experience is a really valid and important source of evidence and information. So you now work in consultancy which, although it's very close to government, catches a pretty bad rap sometimes. And yeah. we, were, we were talking about this just before we started yep. the interview. You're not one of the big four. So how does it feel to be in that space? So I have worked for the big four. I didn't do much consultancy whilst I was here in London, but since I've been back in Australia, I've done a whole range of different forms of consultancy from Ernst & Young in commissioning. So how do you redesign how funding goes through the system to try and achieve different outcomes? to working for a social enterprise called the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, TAXI is its acronym, who are doing some really, really interesting stuff. I definitely check them out for those who are interested. And to now to FutureGov. I've not enjoyed all those experiences without a doubt. I think, again, coming back to that comment I was making around bringing together the analytical and the human-centred approach is important. So for some of them, it probably was too far in analytical approaches whereas others were very close to citizens and, and understanding things from their perspectives. The thing I love about FutureGov is it kind of brings the two together. FutureGov is really focused on trying to get stuff implemented and get stuff done. For me, I like the fact that I can work across a whole range of different issues and you get perspectives on the system when you're working across different systems, whereas I guess if you're working in a particular piece of policy, that is your focus. Although when I worked in Cabinet Office, my role was funding innovation projects in the health and human services space. And part of that was trying to get different silos in government to work together a bit better. The benefit of consultancy is that you can see connections between different things. You just don't always have the time to be able to bring them together, which can be a bit frustrating. 
organisations like FutureGov who are really socially minded. You know, Dom and Carrie set up FutureGov 10 years ago because they wanted to make a difference in the world. They were ex-local authority staff who were frustrated with how technology and digital services weren't being embraced yet in government. And so for them at that point in time, making change, it was going to be easier to do it, well, more effective, not necessarily easier, to do it from outside. And there is something about the consultant's voice. It gets privileged over staff in many cases which can be frustrating when you're a hardworking internal member of staff and you've seen this opportunity or this gap, but no one's listened to you. And there is something about being a consultant, you're being paid for it. People value that voice a bit higher. At the same time, it can be frustrating not being able to then go and implement it. You then have to leave and that can be really sad. The way FutureGov is trying to work is we're trying to be there and seeing what the problem is helping them to design solutions, to then prototyping those and then hopefully into delivery of those new ideas or new services or often organisational change. It can be frustrating consultancy because you're not in there in the thick of it, but it can also be really rewarding because you work across a whole range of different issues and you can bring that together. It's you and your knowledge about your experiences and seeing opportunities can then be hard to leave something where you've brought the voices of citizens in and because of internal politics, nothing changes. When we talk about consultants in government, you know, we've had some bad experiences. One of our previous interviewed people, Lena, that was talking about how she feels that we do have to, as government, work with external parties, at least for the time being, to get some real change to happen because of that authority of an external voice. And sometimes I think we've even seen it in government. So the example in the UK would be the government digital service and aiding digital service. We've found that because we're this new shiny organisation, we're listened to a lot more. That's right. But we try to use that to amplify the voices of the people who are in the organisation. That's right. And so my experience of consultancy that have been good is where we've worked in partnership with our clients. The experiences I've not enjoyed is where it's almost part of the business model to keep people dependent on you and your skill set. I much prefer to go in there and have a partnership with people that we're working with to leave them in a better position. Speaking of FutureGov, so it's an international organisation. It spans like seven countries, is it? I think something like that. Yeah, it's hard to keep. (laughs) So what made you return to Australia, apart from the obvious, like beautiful beaches and sunshine? The other thing I do in my spare time is support my partner to run a coffee shop because um, I don't have enough on my plate running a small consultancy. My partner and I set up the coffee shop almost two years ago and that has been really beneficial for me in bringing a combination of my skill sets together because it's also about customers. If you ignore your customer when you're providing a coffee or a brunch, you hear about it very quickly. I love that answer. I think that's great. The other thing I was interested in in returning to Australia is to see how some of The learning, the examples, the change happening here in the UK could be applied there. Different context, we're much more rural and regional. We've got inequality, but it's not as widespread, but deep inequality when we think about Aboriginal populations and communities. But we are in a very different context in Australia. Have you seen any similar problems in Australia that you also encountered when you were working in the British public context? The Australian context is similar in many ways to the British context, but also quite different. We definitely have the challenges of government services not always meeting citizens' needs. 
siloed ways of working between different departments and services. And that's particularly exacerbated, I think, in Australia, because we've got three layers of government. So it's an extra complexity. And it's a historical reason. We were seven separate states coming together to form a country, and we all wanted to retain our power. But that has meant that it's quite hard to affect change. So it might mean more sense from the user that departments are working together better, but you're not only bringing departments together, you're bringing different governments together. Australia is a very big country. We're geographically dispersed and we often work in bubbles, I think. So whilst we still have some of the pressures, I also don't think we have the same immediate pressure that the UK has had because Australia escaped the biggest impact of the global recession 10 years ago. And so we are still quite a privileged country with real pockets of inequality, but it feels like it's not as present and focused in the national mind that we have these things that need to change. And that's not to say there's not lots of really, really good stuff happening in government in Australia, but it's almost like the burning platform isn't there to the same extent I've seen it here in the UK. Are there any services that you've worked on in Australia that you feel particularly proud of or you'd like to do a shout out to? So one of the projects I'm most proud of, it wasn't a smooth project by any means, was a piece that I worked on when I was working at TAXI, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. So I'd set up the Sydney team, brand new team. First time I'd work in that kind of intense human-centered design environment, we had a really ambitious client who wanted us to support them to deliver a human-centered design approach to Aboriginal employment outcomes, which is obviously one of the biggest, most challenging, complex problems you could choose to look at. It was a six-month project. Being able to do that in that time frame with a new team and with a client who are incredibly ambitious but probably still learning their trade as well, the team did an amazing job of going around building trust with the Aboriginal community who have a huge sense of distrust with government for good reason, really making sure that those voices were brought into the work that we did. The product, the kind of end result that we produced was this report, really putting their voices and experiences at the heart of it, which is I know is now then led on to a whole series of work to think through how can we change how we deliver this employment program. And so that makes me really proud because it was a baptism of fire for the team, but also for the government client as well. They have learned so much from that project going forward about how you bring design into government, the difficulty of that and how it's actually a really different way of thinking through problem solving. And it's the kind of project where you can see it through up all these issues around how decisions are made and siloed ways of working, which I think will put them in good stead for future work that they do. So it was the combination of making sure that users' voices were there at the centre, not only in the, the way we designed the project and ran it, but also the final output to the client and hopefully going forward the change they're going to make in redesigning that service as well. You couldn't ignore their voices. It was a really powerful piece of work. That made me pretty proud. You talked about bringing design into government and some of the challenges of that. What drives you crazy about working with government? Part of it is the silos we have up within government that we've created. And I understand why we've done it over the years, because it's helped us to run a really efficient, giant beast of an organisation. But that doesn't mean we need to keep it like that. So I guess the lack of historical perspective sometimes in terms of how these structures have been created and that when moving to a new age where those structures are no longer necessarily valid is something that drives me crazy. That thing of, oh, well, it's how we've always done it. Or all the regulations say we can't change. And when you dig into it, you go, but there aren't really regulations. It's just how we've been interpreting it. 
government structures change all the time with machinery of government changes. We don't have to have a big government shifts to local government could be possible and could happen and greater involvement of citizens in government could be there. What's frustrating is that a way of working where we don't talk to citizens because we're scared of what they might say has taken over frustrates me hugely. Because when you talk to people, they're actually really grateful to be spoken to, to have their views and opinions heard. Most citizens want to feel like they're contributing to the greater good. From their experiences, being used to redesign services for better is a really good thing. And people will generally be willing to do that. It's our fear in government of being scared what people might say that stops us doing that. My key learning from this piece in Australia around Aboriginal employment outcomes, people were scared to go out, ask questions, to do interviews, which for me was a shock because somehow it's what I've done throughout my career. <laughs> so that was good learning for me as well, that that skill set that I have of interviewing people is actually something that we need to learn and encourage in other people. I was just lucky enough to find my way there, whereas others have maybe developed different skill sets. I need to develop my analytical skills, <laughs> but I'm very clear on that. But it's also valuing that they're not soft skills. They are through hard practice. I honed my skills in that space. And those of us that do this type of work have done that. There's nothing soft about that skill. So for me, the frustration in government is when that's not privileged as a skill set that's actually really valuable and something that more public servants should be learning. Can you think of some times when public servants, maybe like the ones you've just described, had that light bulb moment when they first spoke mm. to someone? The same piece of work in Canberra, there was this realisation from someone we worked with the capital of Australia is chosen between Sydney and Melbourne because each one wanted the capital to be in their own cities. And so to agree on forming a country, they went, OK, we'll put it in the middle of a sheep field between us. It's meant that there's a real culture around Canberra of you're a little bit isolated. And obviously there is a bit of Canberra bubble, as great as the work they do. One of the public servants that we were working with and taking out into the field realised, wow, my perspective is only one in many perspectives. And my experience here living and working in Canberra from his position of privilege is only one in a number of stories. So that was really powerful. And I can see him as a future leader in the public service. So that gives me hope that the work that we're doing, even though sometimes it might not lead to immediate change and some of the work that we do doesn't always get implemented, which can be really frustrating. But I think it's the experiences that our partners, our clients go through by working with us gives me hope because it's those individuals that will go on to future careers in the public service, having now experienced talking to ordinary citizens and some of the most vulnerable marginalised citizens in Australia will put him in good stead, I hope, of being a different kind of leader than if he didn't have that experience. That's what inspires you to stay working with government? Yeah. People change all the time. Like it's the human element, right? And it's the fact that we work on really, really complex issues. And what I really like, and I've learned over my career, is we don't have all the answers. And that's actually quite relieving when you realise that. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room that has an answer to these problems. What's more important is bringing a diversity of perspectives in and working with that to not only design services, but to understand what the problem is in the first place. When you can get a diverse group of people doing that, then I find that quite empowering. Speaking of having a diverse group of smart people in one room, you're currently at the One Team Gov conference. How has it been so far? 
It's been electric, actually. It just started. So we had the warm up session, but that was really nice. Run into a few people that I used to work with in various different circles, which was really nice. But I've also met some new people, people I've known on Twitter or people I've never met. There are people who have been here and to a number of One Team Gov events, but someone also who's new to this space and he doesn't even work in government. He was from a law firm who was keen to learn about different ways of working and how that could apply to the innovation space and work that he's doing there. So I think that's what's quite nice about it is it is really diverse. You've got people who work in NGOs and people from across the world that are here interested to learn from each other. And right now at the window that we're sitting, there's some yoga happening in the main halls. It's also nice that it's been designed for different preferences. It's not just going and running and talking for those more extroverted like myself. There's also chill out time for those who might need a bit of introversion time. I'm guessing you two are skipping the yoga. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm very happy to skip yoga. (laughs) (laughs) We pre-stalked you, of course, Mm -hmm. online, and you actually already gave us a hint earlier in that you co-run or co-own a cafe. Yeah, I do. What's your favourite thing on the menu? Oh, that's hard because like all good designers, we've iterated as we've gone. The menu is almost not recognisable from the first time we designed the menu. So the favourite thing at the moment probably is we've got a dish called Persian toast, which homemade baba ganoush, halloumi, roast tomatoes, Turkish bread, dukkha that Andy, my partner, makes. It's delicious. Middle Eastern food for the win. Yeah. Andy's French toast is pretty impressive too. Follow us on Instagram. We're called Two Tails Cafe. We're in inner city Sydney. And yeah, some pretty impressive dishes there. All our Aussie listeners take notes. Yes. <laughs> I'm basically next door, so I'll be flying over just to come to your cafe. Free coffee for all listeners. <laughs> awesome. There we go. I've done my pitch. Come to Two Tails Cafe. Wicked. You've increased our audience miraculously just with that one statement. Thank you. Are you going to partake in the picnic slash drinks after One Team Gov today? I think I shall. Summary out there, so be great. Have you managed to start collecting your sticker haul yet? I have, yes, actually. I've got a One Team Gov podcast sticker and I will go and continue to collect more. I've been up to where they have all of the marketplace stalls and they have a couple of tables for each country. So obviously being biased, you have to go to the Canadian stand because we have some hilarious apology related Canadian merchandise. Just to close out, we always ask for some recommendations for ourselves and our listeners. Could you recommend one Twitter account and it can't be your own cafe? (laughs) That's fair enough. This is obviously going to get me brownie points, but I'd recommend following Dominic Campbell, FutureGov CEO. You'll see a range of things from the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> depending on whether he's watching the football or not. I would definitely recommend that because that's how I met Dom. I sent him a tweet. So that's also the power of networking and Twitter as well, I guess, social media. Dom tweets a whole range of different things. And at the moment, he's part-time CEO, but also working as Chief Digital Officer of Homes England. So some really interesting, challenging stuff that he'll be tweeting about. Can you recommend one podcast? This is where I struggle. I'm really sorry, but I'm not a big podcast listener. If I'm listening to something, it's music. I love music. That's my way to chill out and switch off my brain. Follow me on Spotify if you want some good tunes. A whole mix. I love my 60s music to music from all different countries across the world. I've got like some 60s Iranian music. Obviously, I've got playlists for the cafe as well. And what's been really nice is one of our customers does come in and go, oh, I love your new playlist. So that's been really flattering as an avid music listener. 
You'll have to take over the One Team Gov playlist later. Cue up all of your favorite songs. Can you recommend a book for our listeners? Well, at the moment, top of my list of things to do, being back in London, was going to Borough Market and then obviously to Tate Modern. Loved that place. So I went in there, got really crazy with the books, but I bought Mary Beard's Women and Power and Manifesto. And I've really enjoyed reading that. It's good to top up your feminist fire every now and then. Topping up our feminist fire is essential for this podcast. Finally, could you recommend a charity or social enterprise that you'd encourage our listeners to donate to? I was really lucky enough in my career to work for a foundation here called Guys and St. Thomas's Charity. They're affiliated with the hospital. They were really lucky to get loads of money 500 years ago that they've continued to reinvest. And I was privileged enough to work with a woman called Yvonne there who has set up her own social enterprise. And so she was there working on bringing art into medicine, health and well-being. They've got a whole body of work in that space. And Yvonne spin out from her work there has set up an organization called Breathe Arts Health Research. And the thing they're most famous about is using magic to help kids with hemiplegia to improve their movement in their hands. And they've done proper studies. Again, it's bringing the creative and the hard analytical evidence base together, which I love. So they've worked with neuroscientists to study brain patterns and also with physiotherapists to measure the improvement in these young kids' movability in their hands. And it's also addressed the social impact of having hemiplegia, which you can get bullied, you're picked on, but by bringing people together, other young kids who are in a similar position to you, you realise you're not alone. So the work that they do there is amazing. They're called Breathe Arts Health Research. They're just based down the road in Southwark. And what she does there is amazing. Gone from how can I do something different to an impact on people's lives and how can I take this out of a bigger charity as a spin-off? And she's been commissioned by health organisations to run this work, Magic Camps. So check them out. That is amazing. That is such a good example of a creative problem solving for such a hard problem. Traditional physiotherapy is so boring. How do you get kids doing this stuff? magic kids love magic and then it's also it's not only that the doing it's then also the self-esteem and the emotional boost that they get from doing this work they have something to impress their friends with i love it that's ace thanks so much for chatting with us and i hope you have a great rest of the conference i'll be following along on twitter thank you for your insights and your feminist fire we feel reignited thank you to you both have a good conference Wow, what a fun interview. What did you think about that, Kylie? That was brilliant. It was our first interview with an Australian talking about Australian stuff. So yay for a global wanting of podcast. Sarah brought out quite a lot of the interesting context that they have really well. So she was talking about some of the similarities with governments that we're more familiar with in the UK or Canada and how it's either more complex or slightly more straightforward. What's interesting is politically, Australia isn't facing some of the same challenges as the UK in that they escaped most of the global recession. Obviously, there are still massively underprivileged groups, but on the whole, there wasn't that same move towards austerity. Services were better provisioned still. But then some of the needs which come out more are around the fact that it's such a complex, layered government, not just national, but provincial and then local and what that introduces in terms of even more silos. So I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I really enjoy speaking to people from countries which have multiple layers of government as well. It just gives you so many other layers to try and experiment on as well as obviously difficulties as you just outlined. Yeah, I remember when we were speaking to Lena about the US and Canada and I was like, wow, that's a lot. The other thing that was quite new for our podcast is that Sarah has worked in literally every single sector possible, everything from consultancy to charity sector to local government to the Greater London Authority. I really loved our question about when she'd experienced moments being in the thick of it. And she talked about working for ministers and the pressure that's around that. It's such a central government phenomenon to have this obsession with working in private office and the most high-ranking parts of government. And I loved how she just sort of cut through all of that by saying ministers are people too. And if you understand their motivations and what they're looking to achieve, then you can help them get to that. It was just a really simple way of putting it. Also, it's just so nice to hear from someone who's had such a varied career. There's a real perception of people working in and around government that they've just done that their entire lives. And it's actually a kind of bad bias that I've often had when I go into meetings. And then you find out that actually people have had really, really varied careers. And you could really hear from Sarah that she had picked up little nuggets of gold from each one of those. And that's what she bought as a whole package to FutureGov. That was really good to hear. What did you think about what she said about consultants? That was one of my favourite questions. We've worked with a lot of consultants in teams I've been in in the UK, less so in Canada now, but you know they're still around, especially the big consultancies get a pretty bad rap. But the kind of work that FutureGov has been doing is actually really inspiring. They're using that privilege that comes with being a paid for consultant. Often internally, senior stakeholders value the voice of the consultant over people who are already working in the area, civil servants, public servants. It must be really frustrating, and I definitely experienced that myself, where you feel like you're seeing someone come in from the outside without any knowledge of your domain and making these recommendations that you might have been trying to make for years but didn't really have the impact. And then suddenly a well-paid person comes in and magically everyone's making progress. That's the worst side of consultancy, I think, in public service. And what it seems like Sarah and her teams are doing are using that privilege for good and helping to amplify the voices of those internal staff, promoting it and making sure that they stay as long as they can through the duration of the problem that they're trying to solve. Because I can imagine, and she was saying, that you come in and you work really closely with the staff and you feel like the recommendations that you make and all the research that you do and maybe the prototyping as well are going to have a brilliant impact. And then suddenly your consultancy term is up and you have to leave. So there are pros and cons, but I think the style of work that FutureGov and Sarah are doing is definitely the positive sort that we want to see in government. Consultants are people too. Must remember that in my next meetings. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What did you think about the example she shared around Aboriginal employment outcomes? I loved that example. That's when we were talking about how do you see and know when people have that light bulb moment and realize that this way and style of working is the way to go. And she talked about going out and speaking to Aboriginal communities and gathering those stories and using her privileged position as a consultant to amplify those voices, as you were just saying, Kylie. And she talked about the impact that those stories had on the people in power. And I think that sometimes because government is so obsessed with big data and data-driven decisions, and it seems the strong thing to do to use data, we miss out on the power of stories and narratives and their ability to really change perceptions of people who have decision-making abilities. 
I really, really love that. And that really shows the power of the work that Future Cover are doing. And finally, in terms of Sarah's background, the other thing that was really great to hear was how she managed to use her background in legal, use that for good in terms of challenging rules and processes and policy in the way that keeps the intent, but maybe doesn't follow the rules exactly. And I quite liked that analogy that she drew between those two areas. You can understand what the rule or the policy is trying to achieve, but you can be a bit more creative about how you get to that outcome. That's something we talk about quite a lot in our domain in terms of hacking the bureaucracy or working around different ways of policy. And it's not because people in that space aren't respectful of why certain processes are in place, but it's more about we can be creative in the way that we solve the problem and still meet the intention without following it to the letter. Didn't that dish that she talked about, the Mediterranean one, sound delicious at her cafe? Absolutely. I almost want to go to Sydney just to try that out. That sounds amazing. And also, how cool is it that her and her partner run a cafe? I mean, that's literally living my dream life. Maybe the next One Team Gov Global should be in Sydney just so that we can be catered by that cafe. Sarah, if you're listening, make it so. I bet they make a beautiful flat white. (laughs) Of course. And that's it from the One Team Gov show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.